If, like Jesus, you are a faithful Jew living in first century Palestine, uh, at least at least once in your life, uh, you will endeavor to make a journey uh, to the temple in Jerusalem, and it will make an unforgettable impression upon you. Jerusalem is, as you know, a city built on a hill, and if you're traveling up to Jerusalem from outside of the city, as you ascend by foot, perhaps riding on an animal, the enormity of what would greet your eye as you come over the ridge um, is hard to overstate. It's dominating the skyline. The Temple of Jerusalem is an awe-inspiring and utterly magnificent work of architecture. It combines both Greek and Near Eastern styles, and um, the walls are made of these gigantic snowy white marble slabs creating walls up to 150 feet high, much of that plated in gold. In its external form, the temple is the primary symbol of Israel's national life, a monument uh, to its identity among the nations. As you probably know, it was originally constructed about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus under King Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians and then rebuilt again, second temple in the fifth and fourth centuries BC. And then shortly before the birth of Jesus, but continuing not only through his birth, but through his entire adult life, there's a massive expansion and renovation of the temple ongoing, initiated by King Herod the Great. In a world where the Jews had very little control or influence over much of anything outside of themselves, as they were a vassal state of the Roman Empire, the temple, this was Herod the Great's vision for it, it was meant to look massive, meant to be elaborate, to sort of suggest eternity. Again, this is what was intended by it. Of course, also, and even more importantly, the temple is the locus of God's presence with God's people, the nation of Israel. It is, for Jews, the holiest place on the planet. There is inside this magnificent structure an elaborate priestly complex for the ordering of the people's worship life, daily sacrifices going on all the time, beautiful temple choirs, Again, a very sophisticated administration and a bureaucracy, and it takes a lot of money to keep all that machinery moving and working. But what we are always meant to get when we hear the word temple is it is the place of atonement. It is where the people, where we all get right with God. A place of sacrifice and restoration so that the relationship can be put back together. The temple is the place where Jews come to renew their covenant, rededicate their lives to the Lord. Again, this all happens inside the temple and what the temple is really supposed to be about. Yet in our gospel reading today, Jesus' disciples seem mainly impressed with its edifice. They display childlike wonder, marveling over its physical size and splendor. They're walking back away from the temple 
down through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, and they look over their shoulders back at the temple behind them to the west, and they exclaim, look, teacher, what large stones and large buildings. And as we hear, Jesus is less impressed. Are you so taken in by this grandeur? What I see are structures made by human hands. It will not last, therefore, In time, not one stone will be left upon another. It is coming down. And indeed, that is precisely what happened in the year 70 AD. The Romans destroyed the whole thing. What sits there now is is a small comparison to the temple that would have existed in the time of Jesus. So this is an apocalyptic announcement All our impressive temple complexes, all human edifices will crumble. They cannot carry the freight that we assign to them. Yikes. All of this happens, of course, in the shadow of the cross that will unfold in just the next two days in Mark's gospel. Jesus is about to complete, therefore, what the temple can never finish. An irrevocable atonement with God once for all. And in Jesus' atonement on the cross, we are delivered once for all from all the otherwise impressive temple complexes that we would construct for ourselves. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs he tells us. So I find this interesting. At the very beginning of the gospel according to Mark, and indeed the very first sentence of the gospel according to Mark, it is announced, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we begin reading, and here we are at the very climax of the gospel right there, and what we hear, certainly to my ears, sounds like bad news. An ominous prophecy of destruction. The world crumbling apart. All will be thrown down, Jesus says. Well, so which is it, Mark? Is it good news or is it bad news in the end? Well, here's a better question. What if the beginning of the good news actually looks like the destruction, the coming down of everything that gets in its way? that blocks its path, that obscures its reality in our lives, in our world. Like the Jews of Jesus' day under Roman power, sometimes we may feel as if we have little actual control or influence over anything beyond the little lives that we can construct for ourselves. And so we want that life to look impressive, a bulwark, against a shaky international order, lousy government, social, cultural division, natural disasters like wildfires, unexpected illness and tragedy. Our own temple complexes carefully and elaborately constructed. I know you well enough to share this truly in love, but if I were to identify, and I've thought about this a lot through the years, Sort of the three edifices 
that are especially prominent here in this community, I would name them thusly. One, careers. Two, our children. And three, social standing, the constant pressure to be in the inner ring, as C.S. Lewis called it, even if it means compromising or silencing our Christian beliefs to do so. What if it is just possible that to have even one of those cherished temples falling down in your life might open up the possibility that something better and more life-giving would replace it, even if you never hoped for it? Mark might say that would indeed represent the beginning of the good news. Of course, of course, no one wishes for trouble or failure or calamity, and no one would ever say that careers and children and and being socially accepted is a bad thing, except when they become the most important thing in your life. We might think over this challenge, this question, Would it be the end of our world? Or might it actually lead to freedom? My pastoral experience with many of you is exactly in conformity with my own experience. And that is to say that I have experienced the greatest spiritual growth exactly when things have fallen apart for me. My yearning, my desires for God, You're the same way. A successful career derailed by an unexpected turn, a round of layoffs, a a merger, an economic, economic downturn, a bad investment, not getting along with a particular supervisor or boss. A teenage child in deep trouble. And the worry, the fear, and the helplessness that parents experience in the midst of that. Or a day arrives in your life when you have finally the courage to admit that you have exactly the life you thought you wanted, the one you envisioned, and it feels like a mere edifice without substance behind it, without depth, without joy. And these temples coming down in your life lead you to your knees, into prayer, into scripture, into the church, into honest, if hard, conversations with people who want substance and depth in their lives too. This has been my experience. This has been your experience. You know this is true. Again, we don't wish for it ever, but the collapse of our various temple complexes is so often the path to new and unexpected life. The death of our false identities and counterfeit loves is the way to our true identity and real godly love. And to trust this, to trust what I just said is very close to the very heart of Christian spirituality. There's a 14th century devotional classic called Meditations on the Life of Christ. It's actually a meditation on the cross originally attributed to St. Bonaventure. And I want to I quote you a sentence from this. To him who searches the cross from the bottom of the heart and with the marrow of his being, 
Many unhoped-for steps would take place by which he would receive new compassion, new love, new solace, and then a new condition that would seem to him a promise of glory. It takes real courage and it takes real trust to believe that many unhoped-for steps might lead us into the promise of glory. But life... Life is about unhoped-for steps, isn't it? Sir James McMillan is one of the great contemporary classical composers and conductors. He's a Scotsman. McMillan is also a Christian. Several years ago, McMillan delivered a homily at the funeral service for his granddaughter, Sarah, who was six years old when she died. Sarah had been born with multiple handicaps due to what's called Dandy Walker Syndrome. And in his homily, Macmillan noted that given her terrible troubles that were identified very, very early on, that there were already voices questioning why she would come into this world, what she could possibly offer, what a burden she would be to her family, what cost to society, what suffering she herself would endure. All threats to temple complexes of prosperity and safety and health and comfort. But Macmillan, as a Christian, lives in a different story. He speaks of a different temple where the promise of glory radiated through this precious child to all who came into contact with her. And he says in his homily, in mutual love with Sarah, we saw rapture gazing upon rapture, saw tenderness embrace tenderness, saw devotion build upon devotion, saw the cherisher lift up the cherished. We saw heart lost to heart. And how this deep and cosmic love spread out to everyone who was privileged to enter. Everyone who gets to heaven gets there through the grace of God. But for most of us, it involves struggle because that's just the way it is. Who would ever pray for Sarah? this precious grandchild, to come into the world and live the life that she was born to live. But she did so. And God interferes in our lives just like this for so many. Crashes into our world, crumbles our temples. And this is not a darksome threat. This is just the way it is. These unhoped-for steps that are nevertheless the way of entering into the real temple, who is God in Jesus Christ. And perhaps we might pray the unhoped-for steps that we are called to walk might be for all of us the beginning of the good news.